Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And do I have a story for you? This story concerns one of the most daring British spies of World War II, Polish-born Christina Skarbek, known best today by her anglicized name, Christine Granville. Her exploits, which were kept silent for a number of years beyond the war, are worthy of an intense spy drama, something that Bond creator Ian Fleming had already recognized when he wrote Casino Royale in 1952 and created the beautiful dark-haired spy Vesper Lind, the first Bond girl, played best by Ava Green in the 2006 version of Casino Royale. Look at Miss Green in that part, and you're very close to Christine Granville. I'll post side-by-sides at 1001 Heroes' Facebook page when this episode comes out. Of course, the Bond story is fiction, but Christina Scarbeck, alias Christine Granville, was said to be Churchill's top spy. Her exploits are legend. Fleming had dated her for a time when he worked in British intelligence and had a huge admiration for her, something that could be said, and was said, by every man who knew her or worked with her. Christine had a spirit and a love for life and a presence that made her seem almost electric to some. The British intelligence, once they got past the early jitters with her, knew Christina Scarbeck slash Christine Granville to be intensely loyal to the Allied cause and considered her a mega-hero. She was the first female agent in the British Secret Service and may possibly have been the best. A number of biographies have been written about her, and they're all good. But I'll begin this story with the one offered up by Madeleine Masson. The story is named Christine, SOE Agent, and Churchill's Favorite Spy. Madeleine Masson's story, in part at least, owes its depth to a chance meeting on a passenger ship, the Winchester Castle, in May-June 1952, bound from Cape Town, South Africa, to England. Masson was a passenger aboard this ship. She was a South African-born English-language author of plays, film scripts, novels, memoirs, and biographies. She had just turned 40, and yet she had seen some life. At the tender age of 18, while on a trip to Paris with her parents, she had chanced to meet an older man, Baron Renaud Marie de Minaudier. As she would later state in her autobiography, I was a small-town South African who was being offered Prince Charming on a platter, decked with yachts, a chateau, sable coats, jewels, townhouses, and a coat of arms equal to that of the Valois. She took her surname Masson from one of the Baron's subsidiary titles. When she became pregnant with the Baron's first child, she was informed by the Baron's mistress, whom she had mistakenly supposed was no longer a part of his life, that not only were they still linked, but it was her fortune that paid for the Baron's elegant lifestyle. Any disturbance in their relations would result in her pulling all the funds. The shock of this revelation caused Masson to miscarry. She abandoned the aristocratic life and embraced Paris's Bohemia, studied history and philosophy at the Sorbonne, art at Munich, wrote for the literary magazine Les Nouvelles Littéraires. She followed that with an affair with a South African, became the lover of the Swiss painter Gia Augsburg, got to know Pablo Picasso and André Breton, and met writers Colette and André Guide. If you're wondering, I have a reason for sharing Masson's life before we get to Christine Granville, and I'll get to that in a minute. When World War II came, the Jewish-descended Madeleine Masson left Gia Augsburg, intending to return to South Africa, but on the train to Bordeaux, she was persuaded to join the French resistance. She later recalled this period, 
during which he carried messages and helped escapees as a time of total horror. In later years, she helped Tim Buckmaster, son of Maurice Buckmaster, the head of SOE's French section, prepare a biography of his father. SOE stood for Special Operations Executive, and it was Churchill's secret force whose mission it was to carry out espionage, sabotage, and reconnaissance in occupied Europe and Southeast Asia. It was sometimes nicknamed the Baker Street Irregulars or Churchill's Secret Army. Now, why do I bother to share the life of a biographer? One simple reason, because it so closely parallels the life of the woman she was about to write about. Now, aboard the Winchester Castle, Masson was intrigued by her female cabin steward, who was polite, efficient, and distant, as she put it. She would later write, No warning bell rang, to tell me that twenty years later, waking and sleeping, I should try to recall every word, every intonation, and every gesture of this woman. The cabin steward's job was to clean the cabin, swab the toilets, change the sheets, and tidy up. As for jobs, it was as menial as they come. What may have sparked Masson's curiosity was the cruise ship captain's habit of occasionally asking his crew to display their war medals, knowing some of them had tales to tell, tales that would make the passengers' trips the more memorable. Masson no doubt saw Christine Granville's vest with its medals, including the French Croix de Guerre and the very handsome British George Medal, among others. These medals created talk among the other shipboard employees, who assumed, with Granville being a common steward, that they must have been faked, or maybe acquired from the men who constantly flocked around her. For Granville was a beauty, and she was full of life. She inspired jealousy in her peers. But her occupation indicated a place in society not often occupied by war heroes. One man named Muldowney, who worked odd jobs on the ship, stood up for her aboard ship, and for doing that she thanked him. Some biographers indicate they had a brief affair. But he misjudged her interest in him, for after a short time, there was none. She could sense there was something wrong with him, and she cautiously kept her distance from him. Upon landing at Southampton on June 13, 1952, Masson inquired about the full name of her stewardess and was told that it was Christine Granville. A few days later, Masson was shocked to read in her morning paper that, on the night of June 15th, Christine Granville had been murdered in a London hotel. She had been murdered by a man named Muldowney, who had also worked aboard the ship. Masson immediately remembered that it was Granville who had been her stewardess on the ship. Subsequent days brought sensational stories about how Granville had been killed, stabbed to death inside the hotel in a stairway by Muldowney, who was caught and confessed. He was soon tried and hung. Christine Granville's name was one that had been given her by the SOE, Churchill's intelligence arm. Her real name, Masson found out, was Scarbeck, Christina Scarbeck, and she was a war hero attached to the British SOE. Those medals she wore on her ship's uniform? They were legit. For Masson, this was a story that had to be told. How extensive were Scarbeck's missions? How did she end up cleaning cabins on a passenger ship, working as a steward? Why was she killed? Did she have any family? From that point on, Masson dedicated herself to accumulating information about Christine Granville, and she was to find many similarities between herself and Granville, which made the hunt for the story personal. Both were descended from bankers' families, had Jewish heritage, and a bankrupt aristocrat in the family, Scarbeck's father, Masson's first husband, 
and had worked during World War II with the French resistance, Scarbeck under SOE British sponsorship. This created a natural basis for the author's empathy with her subject. Masson sought out anyone who had known Scarbeck and found her most complete informant in an ex-agent named Andrei Kowerski, an ex-Polish resistance fighter whom Christine had known since childhood and whose proposal she had accepted just days before her untimely death. In fact, tragically, she was due to fly to see him that day, the day she was killed. Masson's account of the information that she obtained from him is so detailed that it reads like a verbatim transcript of their conversations. Almost immediately after Christine's death, a close cabal of her associates from World War II, led by Kowerski, met to form what they called a panel to protect the memory of Christine Granville. It was Kowerski who welcomed Masson into their confidence as Christina's biographer, assured that she would spare Christina's memory the salacious details concerning her busy sex life, and for the most part, Masson honored those wishes. Due to biographer Masson's time spent working for the French resistance and coordinating with British intelligence during the war, she would be able to approach other agents who worked with and knew and loved Christine Granville. And it is to Masson's efforts, in addition to others, that we owe this incredible story of one of the most daring spies of World War II. One of those others, I should mention, is Claire Mulley, author of The Spy Who Loved. There's a terrific YouTube video of her giving an hour's talk about Christine Granville's life at the UK War Museum. And the first thing you realize there is that Granville's exploits alone would take hours to relate in detail. Masson would write, One of the strongest impressions I gained from listening to the talk of Christine's friends was that she hated any form of oppression, not only for patriotic reasons, but because she translated her own craving for freedom of thought and action into every human sphere. Anything that threatened her liberty or that of anyone else became a personal issue. It's time that you got to know Christina Scarbeck, a.k.a. Christine Granville. Christina Scarbeck was born in 1908 in Warsaw to Count Jerzy Scarbeck, a Roman Catholic, and Stefania Goldfeder, the daughter of a wealthy, assimilated Jewish family. Marrying Stefania in late December 1899, Jerzy Scarbeck used his wife's dowry, her father was a banker, to pay his debts and continue his lavish lifestyle. The couple's first child, whose name we will anglicize to Andrew, took after the mother's side of the family. Christina, their second child, took after her father and his liking for riding horses, which she sat astride rather than side-saddle, as was usual for women at that time. She also became an expert skier during visits to Zakopane in the Tatra Mountains of southern Poland. From the start, there was a complete rapport between father and daughter, who needed little encouragement to become a tomboy. At the family stables, Christina met the previously mentioned Andrzej Kowerski, whose father had brought him over to play with ten-year-old Christina, while he and her father discussed agricultural matters. At the age of 18, in 1926, the Goldfeder Bank, to which her father was attached, went under, and the family was forced to sell off everything they owned and move to Warsaw. In Warsaw, the aristocratic Scarbeck name ensured Christina a ticket to society functions, but the gossips at those functions were kept busy sharing news about Christina's half-Jewish parentage and her father's recently failed bank. The abuse became relentless. Quickly, Christina gave up the high society and the company of loose-lipped young women and started frequenting smoky cafes and bars without a chaperone, finding that she much preferred the company of men. She took a job that provided her an office above a local Fiat dealership. 
and somehow those exhaust fumes were making their way straight to her office, and she soon got some pretty heavy exposure to carbon monoxide fumes. She was feeling sick. She quit the job. She had her chest x-rayed, and it was pretty well marked from the fumes. The doctor was sure it was tuberculosis, and that was what had killed her father. She received compensation from her employer's insurance company and took her physician's advice to lead as much of an open-air life as she could. She began spending a great deal of time hiking and skiing in the Tatra Mountains. In 1930, Scarbeck was a runner-up in the Miss Poland Beauty Contest. She came in sixth. She began there to develop a network of friends as well as people in high places. She dreamed of a bigger life, a romantic life, and she tried marriage. On April 21, 1930, Christina married a young businessman, Carl Gustav Getlich, at the Spiritual Seminary Church in Warsaw. But they soon proved incompatible, and the marriage soon ended without rancor. But it did pay a settlement, and now she had money. She soon met a man named Adam, and he was crazy about her, and she him. Then came the day when Christina received an invitation from the young man's mother for tea, just the two of them. They passed away a few minutes just talking about Adam before the mother laid it on the line. Christina, you have no money, no source of income. You're part Jew, and your father died leaving you and your family with nothing. My advice to you is to get lost. This shook Christina hard, and she turned back to skiing, drinking, and fraternizing. One day on the Zakopane ski slope, she lost control of her wooden skis while headed down a steep slope and veered off the slope toward a tree, when she was almost miraculously scooped up by a giant of a man who was immediately taken with her, and she with him. His name was Yerzy Gudziki. They met afterwards at the Slope's restaurant bar and swapped the stories of their lives, and she soon found that his taste for adventure matched her own. He was older, and in his youth he had traveled to the United States, panned for gold, and worked as a cowboy. Yerzy was a brilliant, moody, irascible eccentric, who came from a wealthy family in Kamenianek Podolski, formerly Poland, at the time the Soviet Union. At 14, he had quarreled with his father, run away from home, and worked in the United States as a cowboy and gold prospector. He eventually became an author and traveled the world in search of material for his books and articles. He knew Africa well and hoped one day to return there. On November 2, 1938, Christina and Gazicki married at the Evangelical Reformed Church in Warsaw. Soon after, he accepted a diplomatic posting to Ethiopia, where he served as Poland's consul general until September 1939, when Germany invaded Poland. Skarbek later said of Gazicki, He was my Svengali for so many years that he would never believe that I could ever leave him for good. We'll return to the incredible story of World War II spy Christine Granville right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. When Germany invaded Poland in 1939, the Gazikis were in Ethiopia, Yerzy having taken a posting to Addis Ababa. Determined to defend their country, they immediately left for London, where Christina immediately began pulling whatever strings she could. She first looked up Frederick Voigt, a well-connected political journalist and BBC commentator who she'd met several years earlier, which led to an introduction to Foreign Office Advisor Sir Robert Vansittart. He then suggested her to George Taylor, a formidable Australian businessman who now headed the Balkan section of Section D, an offshoot of the Secret Intelligence Service, SIS, or MI6. First impressions were very favorable, and a memo to Taylor gushed, She's a very smart-looking girl, simply dressed 
and aristocratic. She's a flaming Polish patriot. She made an excellent impression, and I really believe we have a prize. Section D was set up to find novel ways of sabotaging Germany's war efforts. These included spreading anti-Nazi propaganda across occupied Europe, using agents in neutral countries to distribute it. Lines of communication between Hungary and Poland were now badly needed as German propaganda now controlled all news, effectively cutting Poland off from the outside world. Taylor could be an impatient man, but it didn't take long for him to see Christina's potential. She had already considered every detail of her plan. Posing as a journalist based in Budapest, she could cross Slovakia and ski over the Polish border to Zakopane, where she could rely on help from her friends there. Once she'd opened a courier channel, she could begin to deliver propaganda material for the Polish networks to distribute and bring out whatever intelligence they had for London. All she asked for was a chance to prove herself. Taylor endorsed her proposal, and she flew out on December 21, 1939. For all Christine's enthusiasm and determination, this would be a difficult and dangerous mission. Hungary was a neutral country, but its government had recently accepted Slovakian territory offered by the Nazis, and was more likely to cooperate with Germany than with the Allies. Moreover, Sir Owen O'Malley, the British minister in Budapest, took a dim view of Section D's cloak-and-dagger work and refused to have anything to do with it. On arrival in Budapest, Christina was met by Hubert Harrison, who handled Section D's Polish contacts while posing as Balkan correspondent for the News Chronicle, and Josef Redzeminski, a former Polish intelligence agent who would act as her assistant, Using the cover name of Madame Marchand, she quickly found a flat and immediately began making plans for the first trip to Poland. Stubbornly ignoring all advice, she left in February when temperatures had dropped to minus 30 degrees centigrade and snow in the mountains was several meters deep. But she managed to persuade Olympic skier Jan Marazarts, then working for the Polish consulate, to act as her guide. Enlisting the help of some old friends in Zakopane, Christina then set off to begin her real work crisscrossing the country by train, horse, or on foot, gathering information, and making new resistance contacts. Witnessing the daily hardships her countrymen faced under the new German occupation was shocking, but Christina was also encouraged to meet those willing to fight back. Underground newspapers and intelligence networks were springing up everywhere, including one known as the Wiltkowski Organization, or the Musketeers, which would prove to be an invaluable source. We'll return with our story right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. After returning to Budapest, she submitted a long report to London and was then faced with an unexpected problem. Radzeminski had become infatuated with Christina, and after she refused his proposal of marriage, he set out to make a grand romantic gesture. First he jumped off the city's Elizabeth Bridge, but hadn't realized that the Danube was frozen. Next he attempted to shoot himself, but lost his nerve at the last moment and only injured his leg. Unimpressed, Section D requested he hobble back to London immediately. An incident that probably dates to Skarbek's first visit back to Poland in February of 1940 illustrates the hazards she faced while working in her occupied homeland. At a Warsaw cafe, she was hailed by a woman acquaintance. Christina! Christina Skarbek! What are you doing here? We heard that you've gone abroad. When Skarbek denied that her name was Christina Skarbek, the lady answered that she would have sworn she was Christina Skarbek. The resemblance was positively uncanny. After the woman left, Skarbek, to minimize suspicion and to help slow her heart rate, tarried a while before leaving the cafe.
Thankfully, there were more stable contacts to be made, and none more important than Andrew Kowarski, a fellow Pole. Kowarski was also from landowning stock and had joined the Polish motorized division in 1939. Tall and broad-shouldered, he'd lost a leg in a shooting accident before the war. But that wasn't stopping him from smuggling dozens of Polish soldiers and Allied prisoners of war over the Hungarian border. With Harrison about to leave for England, Kowarski and Christina began working more closely together and soon made a formidable team. She crossed into Poland again in June and visited members of her family in Warsaw, including her Jewish mother. Afraid for her safety, Christina begged her to leave the country, but she was determined to stay and carry on her work teaching French to young children. With her courier obligations growing, Christina made another journey a week later, but this time her usual good luck failed. After crossing the Polish border, she and her companion were caught by Slovakian guards, who threatened to hand them over to the Gestapo. Unflustered, Christina refused to disclose anything during several hours of interrogation, and eventually persuaded her captors to take the money she was carrying and let both of them go. A cool head and quick thinking had saved them, but they were now known to the Slovak police, making any further trips very dangerous. Along with carrying out odd propaganda jobs for Section D's news agency, Christina and Kowarski began gathering intelligence on river and train traffic traveling between Germany and Romania, and tracking the movements of frontier guards on the Yugoslav and Slovakian borders. Their love affair only seemed to strengthen their dedication to their work, but things were becoming difficult. Christina was running out of money, communications with London were difficult, and their work was becoming more dangerous every day. Kowarski hardly had time to sleep, but steeled himself to drive thousands of kilometers in his trusty Opel saloon to smuggle Polish airmen, now desperately needed to replace pilots lost during the Battle of Britain, into Yugoslavia. He had also become well known to the Hungarian police and their Gestapo counterparts, who stepped up surveillance of his movements. Christina continued to push herself hard as well, and after a fourth trip into Poland in mid-November, she became seriously ill with flu. Despite their devotion to the cause and each other, they could not hope to carry on for much longer. The inevitable police raid came in the early hours of January 24, 1941. After several fruitless hours of interrogation, the Gestapo were anxious to use more brutal methods of questioning, but Christina was able to interrupt the investigation by playing on her recent illness. Biting her tongue hard, she gave the impression that she was coughing up blood and might be suffering from TB. At a prison hospital, she underwent a chest X-ray, which the doctor concluded that she was seriously ill and arranged for her and Kowarski's release. Remember, if you will, that her chest had been scarred by his monoxide fumes while working above the Fiat dealership. She knew that, and she knew how the X-ray would come up, and that's why she used that ruse. The doctor concluded that she was seriously ill and arranged for her and Kowarski's release. Although still under surveillance, both of them were able to slip away and sneak into the British embassy to ask for O'Malley's help in leaving Hungary. Christina already knew the minister and his family, having already discussed plans to bring out British prisoners of war from Poland. He obliged and issued them with new passports, but they first would need British names to go with them. O'Malley's daughter Kate suggested Christina become Christine Granville, and Kowarski decided on Andrew Kennedy. Although made up on the spur of the moment, both would keep these names for the rest of their lives. Christine was hidden in the trunk of the embassy's Chrysler as it crossed over the Yugoslav border. Then she joined Andrew in his battered opal to continue their journey to Belgrade. 
Over the coming days, they had to endure horrendous driving conditions and suspicious border guards, but they eventually reached Istanbul in neutral Turkey, where the British consulate welcomed them. Christine made an unusual proposal to keep their work going in Budapest. After she had left London, her husband had taken a Polish posting to Gambia. He'd been too old to join up, and was now desperate to see her again. Christine asked London to consider sending him over, and he arrived in Istanbul in March. She had no doubt that Gizicki was the right man to take their place, and although she knew their marriage was dead, she mentioned nothing of her relationship with Andrew. Unfortunately, by the time he reached Budapest, he barely had time to do anything. Under pressure from Hitler, Hungarian troops were about to support the Nazi invasion of Yugoslavia, and British diplomatic relations were broken off. Gizicki had no choice but to evacuate the city with O'Malley's staff just a few days after arriving. After leaving Turkey, Christine and Andrew endured a long and dusty excursion through Syria and Jerusalem to report to SOE's Cairo headquarters in May of 1941. Section D's work had been overtaken by SOE in 1940. They hadn't expected a hero's welcome, but they were mystified by the icy reception they received. There was a simple reason for it. The Polish government in exile in London had just ordered all ties with amateur networks like the Musketeers to be cut, claiming they had been penetrated by German intelligence. This meant that SOE could not send either Christine or Andrew back to the Balkans, and Polish section officer Peter Wilkinson had the unenviable job of breaking the news. Having just arrived himself after a difficult journey from Crete, Wilkinson was blunt to the point of rudeness, something he later regretted, then took the precaution of putting both of them under surveillance, which Andrew soon found out about. Christine handed over microfilm she'd brought from Hungary as evidence of the importance of her sources, which clearly showed the buildup of German forces in advance of the imminent invasion of Russia. But they too were ignored. Having put their lives on the line for their country, they were now suspected of being Gestapo agents. Gizicki, now back in Cairo after an exhausting journey via Russia and Iran, was furious at their treatment. Taylor and SOE's Balkan staff felt uncomfortable about the situation, but they were committed to working with the Polish government, and it would not budge from his ruling. Gizicki was even more distraught after Christine reluctantly broke more bad news, telling him that she wanted a separation. Bruised and embittered, he accepted a gratuity from the British government and later emigrated to Canada. Christine was at a loose end in Cairo. She and Andrew were kept on the SOE payroll, but she soon found herself with little to do apart from lounging in the sun at the Gazira Sporting Club and socializing with her new friends at SOE's HQ. She turned down the offer to become a cipher clerk. It seemed too much like office work, but took a wireless operator course, thinking it would be a useful skill if another mission came her way. Meanwhile, Andrew parted company and became a parachute instructor for SOE recruits. Despite his wooden leg, he insisted on jumping with every group. After completing her wireless training, Christine also gained her parachute wings at the RAF base in Haifa. By 1944, Cairo had become a gilded cage. As O'Malley later put it, Christine had a positive nostalgia for danger, and was miserable without a chance to meet it. At the end of March 1944, Patrick Howarth, one of her closer friends in SOE's Polish section, proposed that she be sent back to Hungary as a wireless operator. However, Christine's charm and powers of persuasion 
were easily spotted by Howarth's commanding officer, who surmised that she had obviously worked overtime on MP-50, which was Howarth's codename. By April the plan had been scrapped. In fact, it was only after D-Day that a vacancy arose, this time in SOE's AMF section, which sent agents into southern France from Algiers. Courier Cecily Lafort had been arrested some months earlier in Montelamar, and her chief needed a replacement urgently. Like many of her class in Poland, Christine spoke near perfect French, and having wireless skills too, made her the natural choice. She was briefed at AMF's Messingham base, and given false identity papers in the name of Jacqueline Armand. Her code name would be Pauline. She parachuted in near Basseur in the Vercors region of the early hours of July 7, 1944. The landing left her bruised and had smashed the butt of her revolver, but that was no great loss. She hated loud bangs, and Andrew's attempts at pistol instruction in Algiers had failed miserably. She would shut her eyes before pulling the trigger. Four days later, she met her new boss, Francis Kamertz, a 28-year-old schoolmaster and former conscientious objector. Tall, authoritative, and security-minded, he had become one of the best SOE operators in the country, his jockey circuit coordinating resistance groups from the Rhone Valley to the Riviera and as far north as Grenoble. After a tour meeting hundreds of Kamertz supporters, they moved to the Vercors Plateau, a vast expanse of forest, gorges, and caves surrounded by huge mountains and limestone cliffs where French guerrillas, known as Maquis, were suffering relentless bombing attacks from German aircraft. I remember in the episode we did, for 1001 Stories for the Road, called Hemingway Saves the Paris Ritz, Hemingway was able to access the French coast on maybe the fourth wave of D-Day, and soon formed his own group, using those French guerrillas called the Maquis, at the same time confiscating a jeep, which he filled with wine as they proceeded toward German-occupied Paris, stopping by village after village and freeing the local bars from wine, until finally reaching the Paris Ritz, at which point he and the Maquis entered the Ritz, went down to the wine cellar, dispatched a couple of German soldiers, and officially declared they had freed the Ritz. I think that episode is titled, Hemingway Liberates the Paris Ritz. Anyway, check that out at 1001 Stories for the Road. You can search it. Anyway, the Maquis were suffering relentless bombing attacks from German aircraft. Weeks before, the people of the Vercors had defied Nazi occupiers and proudly declared their territory a new French Republic. But more than 10,000 well-equipped enemy troops were about to sweep into the area and reclaim it. Despite desperate pleas for help, London failed to come to their aid, and Christine and Francis narrowly escaped the terrible massacre that followed by hiking their way out, covering 70 miles in just 24 hours. A day later, Christine was off to the Italian border. Groups of Poles, reluctantly pressed into German service, were garrisoned at frontier posts overlooking the winding Alpine passes, and her job would be to persuade them to change sides and hand over their arms. Not an easy job. One of her victories was at the Fort École de l'Arche, a 2,000-foot-high stronghold surrounded by dense, large forests. Although bloodied and bruised after a day's climb to reach the garrison, she convinced its 200 Poles to disable their mountain guns and desert their posts. She also enabled several newly arrived Special Forces teams to make contact with Italian partisans and prevent German advances by blowing up the roads and bridges around Briançon. Such episodes soon gained Miss Pauline respect among her male counterparts, but the next would make her a legend. After bringing over another Polish group to the Maquis, news arrived that Francis, his lieutenant Zan Fielding, 
and a French officer had been arrested at a roadblock at Digne on the route Napoleon between Cannes and Grenoble. With Maquis commanders reluctant to attempt a rescue, she immediately bicycled 40 kilometers to the Gestapo HQ and presented herself to Albert Schenk, a French liaison officer working with the Germans. She had nothing to bargain with, so she began a bluff. Declaring herself a British agent and the niece of Field Marshal Montgomery, she warned that an Allied invasion from the South was imminent and the likes of Schenk would be handed over to the mob unless they cooperated with her. It was a desperate gamble, but amazingly, it paid off. French and U.S. troops landed on the Riviera as predicted, and Schenk hurriedly arranged a meeting with Max Wehm, a Belgian interpreter working for the Gestapo. After three hours of negotiations, they accepted Christine's offer of two million francs and a guarantee of protection in return for the three prisoners' lives. The money was dropped by air, and the next day, Weem drove Francis and his bewildered companions out of the prison just hours ahead of their scheduled execution. After passing a roadblock, they recognized Christine waiting for them by the roadside, and Weem was allowed to make his escape as agreed. Thanks to the efforts of the jockey network, General Patch's U.S. forces liberated Digny, Gap, and Grenoble by the end of August, and SOE's job in the region was done. But the war wasn't over for Christine. In September, Churchill's cabinet finally agreed for SOE to send several political missions to Poland, in the hopes that their reports might provide a more objective view of the situation and alleged Soviet atrocities. Christine was given an honorary WAAF commission and sent to SOE's base at Bari on the heel of Italy, from where she could be flown in as a courier. The first team, codenamed Freston, arrived on December 27th, but it was overrun by Soviet forces in January and all other missions were canceled. In his memoir, Hide and Seek, Zan Fielding recalled how Christine often half-jokingly talked of the horrors of peace, and she clearly dreaded the prospect of life without the adventure, camaraderie, and sense of purpose that war had given her. Returning to Cairo, she took a job at Middle East headquarters, and after some discussion, SOE agreed to continue paying her until December of 1945, just before it was due to disband itself. Alone, and with no work prospects, she now faced an uncertain future. Christine discovered that her mother had died in prison after being arrested by the Nazis, and with Poland under Russian occupation, she knew she could never return home. Now stateless, she had no trouble finding referees to support her application for naturalization, but the Home Office ignored her extraordinary service record, and she only became a British citizen in December of 1946. Some of her emigre friends were worried about Christine's precarious situation and encouraged her to join Andrew, now living in Germany. But despite their unique and unbreakable bond, she never pursued the idea of marrying him, until just two days before her death. Sometimes her pride and independence seemed to sabotage any chance of finding financial security. She gave no reason for refusing to accept a house left to her in a friend's will, and turned down the chance of a government post because it was offered in respect of her SOE career. Instead, she drifted through a string of menial jobs, including switchboard operator and Herod's shop assistant. But in 1947, her new British passport enabled her to escape the miseries of London for Kenya, where she met an old friend from Cairo days. The sun and open spaces did her good, and it was in Nairobi that she received the George Medal and OBE. She had already been awarded the French Croix de Guerre. Even Africa had its ghosts, though, and Kenya could sometimes remind her of pre-war life with Gaziki.
"'Despite Skarbek's experience in clandestine work, "'she was given SOE training for prospective agents. "'She proved to be a less-than-ab student at wireless transmitting, "'at which she was hopeless, and firearms, which she hated. "'But she did love parachuting. "'SOE's original plan to parachute Skarbek into Hungary was cancelled "'because the mission was deemed a little short of homicide. "'The continued suspicions about her by the Polish government in exile "'precluded a return to Poland. "'Thus, SOE decided to infiltrate her into southern France. "'Her French was good, and she took a course to improve her English. "'She moved to Algeria in preparation for a mission to France, "'but she was not immediately dispatched "'because SOE believed she was too flamboyant to work undercover effectively.' The SOE had several branches working in France. Though most of the women in France answered to F section in London, Scarbeck's mission was launched from Algiers, the base of AMF section. AMF section was only set up in the wake of Operation Torch, the Allied landings in North Africa, partly with staff from London, F section, and partly with staff from Cairo, MO4. AMF section served three purposes. One, it was simpler and safer to run the resupply operations from Allied North Africa than from London, across German-occupied France. Two, the south of France was to be liberated by separate Allied landings there, Operation Dagrun. SOE units in the area needed to be supplied by their headquarters in Algiers, not by London. And three, AMF section tapped into the skills of the French living in North Africa. With the two invasions in Normandy and southern France in the summer of 1944, these distinctions became irrelevant, and almost all the SOE sections in France were united with the Maquis into the forces Francais de l'Intérieur. There was one exception, the EU-P section, which was formed by Poles in France and remained part of the trans-European Polish resistance movement under Polish command. Skarbek's exploits were recognized with award of the George Medal, Several years after the Digny incident in London, she told another Pole and fellow World War II veteran that during her negotiations with the Gestapo, she had been unaware of any danger to herself. Only after she and her comrades had made good their escape did it hit home. What have I done? They could have shot me as well. For her work in conjunction with the British authorities, in May of 1947, she was made an officer of the Order of the British Empire. That's the OBE an award normally associated with officers of the equivalent military rank of lieutenant colonel, and a level above the most usual award of Member of the Order of the British Empire, the MBE, given to other women agents of the SOE. Despite her problems with the Poles during the war, in 1945, when Skarbek visited Polish military headquarters in a British WAAF uniform, she was treated by the Polish military chiefs with the highest respect. Word had finally gotten around. The medal she received? Officer of the Order of the British Empire. That's the coveted OBE. The George Medal. The 1939-1945 Star for her six years of World War II service. The Africa Star. The Italy Star. The France and Germany Star. The War Medal. And the Croix de Guerre, which is the highest French award given. After the war, Scarbeck was left without financial reserves or a native country to return to. Zan Fielding, whom she had saved from execution by the Gestapo, wrote in his 1954 book, Hide and Seek, dedicated to the memory of Christine Granville. After the physical hardship and mental strain she had suffered for six years in our service, she needed, probably more than any other agent we had employed, security for life. Yet a few weeks after the armistice, she was dismissed with a month's salary and left in Cairo to fend for herself. 
though she was too proud to ask for any other assistance, she did apply for the protection of a British passport. For ever since the Anglo-American betrayal of her country at Yalta, she had been virtually stateless. But the naturalization papers were delayed in the normal bureaucratic manner. Meanwhile, abandoning all hope of security, she embarked on a life of uncertain travel, as though anxious to reproduce in peacetime the hazards she had known during the war. One of the other SOE agents Scarbeck had rescued, Francis Comertz, named his daughter Christine, born in 1948, after her. Unable to find work, Scarbeck went to Nairobi, Kenya Colony, to join Michael Dunford, an old lover, but the British colonial government turned down her application for a work permit. She returned to London, where she became in turn a telephone operator, a salesperson, a waitress, and a cabin steward on ocean liners. On one of the passenger ships, the Ruahine, the crew, including Scarbeck, were required to wear any medals they'd been awarded during the war. Scarbeck's impressive line of ribbons, enough to flatter a general, made her an immediate favorite with the passengers, and an obvious target for resentment among the crew. She was soon the victim of a campaign of abuse for being a foreigner, a woman, and a suspected liar. And as we stated at the top, a fellow steward, Dennis Muldowney, defended her, and the two probably were lovers. Muldowney became obsessed with her, though, and she broke off with him, saying he was obstinate and terrifying. Christine Granville was stabbed to death by Muldowney in the Shelburne Hotel, 1 Lexham Gardens, Earl's Court, in London, on June 15, 1952. She had begun work as a steward some six weeks earlier with the Union Castle Line and had booked into a hotel on June 14th, having returned from a working voyage out of Durban, South Africa, on the Winchester Castle, as Madeleine Masson told us. Her body was identified by her cousin, Andrew Scarbeck. When her death was recorded at the Royal Borough at Kensington's register office, her age was given as 37, the age she had claimed on her British passport. After being convicted of her murder, Modani was hanged at HMP Pentonville on September 30, 1952. Granville was interred in St. Mary's Roman Catholic Cemetery, Kensal Green, Northwest London. In 2013, a ceremony marked the renovation of her grave by the Polish Heritage Society. Following her death, Andrew Kowerski, also known as Andrew Kennedy, led a group of men, especially Kemertz, Roper, and Patrick Howarth, dedicated to ensuring that her name not be sullied and succeeded in stopping several press reports and two books. Author Madeleine Mazzone, whom you've already met, said that 12 men who all loved Christine banded together to make sure that no one wrote rubbish about her. The rubbish apparently being stories of her active and diverse sex life. Mazzone eventually received the support of the group to publish a scrubbed version of Granville's life. Kowerski slash Kennedy died of cancer in Munich, Germany, in December of 1988. His ashes were flown to London, as he requested, and interred at the foot of Scarbeck's grave. He had always loved her. In 1971, the Shelburne Hotel was bought by a Polish group. In a storeroom, they found her trunk containing her clothes, papers, and SOE-issued dagger. This dagger, her medals, and some of her papers are now held in the Polish Institute and Sikorsky Museum at 20 Prince's Gate, Kensington, London. In May of 2017, a bronze bust by Ian Walter was unveiled at the Polish Hearth Club in Kensington. In 2020, English Heritage announced that it would place a blue plaque 
honoring Scarbeck at the site of the former Shelburne Hotel. This plaque was unveiled September 2020, six years after Granville's biographer, Claire Mully, had proposed the plaque to English Heritage. As we mentioned in part, there have been four published biographies of Scarbeck. The first, from Madeleine Masson, Christine, a search for Christine Granville, OBE, GM, and Croix de Guerre, 1975. Then Jean Larecki, Christina Scarbeck, Agent of Many Faces. Then Claire Mully, in 2012, The Spy Who Loved, The Secrets and Lives of Christine Granville, Britain's first female special agent of the Second World War. And Ronald Nowicki, The Elusive Madam G. On May 3, 2016, BBC Radio 4 broadcast an episode of Great Lives in which Christina Scarbeck's life was proposed by Lieutenant General Sir Green Lamb with Claire Mully as the expert witness. Christina Scarbeck, Christine Granville, rest in peace, and the world owes you a debt of gratitude for your service. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. If you enjoy our show, please do stop a moment and send us a kind review. We always appreciate reviews, and reviews help new listeners decide to try us. And please do share our shows with others. Brand new for 2023, you can check out 1001's Best of Jack London stories. It's just about all the podcast hosts now. And also, 1001 Radio Crime Solvers, which is a collection of old radio shows with stories mostly featured on the detective and crime solver genres. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We'll return next week Sunday night with a brand new episode. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.